Like movies? Listen to the 430 Movie, available wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can visit us at 430movie.com. This is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Doctorman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. Welcome. We're here with our regular um, Trexperts who are <laughs> once again uh, joining us, and we're thrilled to have them. Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. It's great to be here. Great to be here. And Ashley Edward Miller. I'm so excited, and I cannot hide it. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you know Rob Burnett as the uh, director, editor, and co writer of. Free Enterprise, which will be celebrating its 20th anniversary next uh, year. And uh, it's hard to believe, but uh, we're old. And uh, then Ashley Miller has Lore, which just dropped on Amazon, and you should check it out. Uh, he's also the writer for the upcoming Red Sonia, which will be coming to theaters sometime in the future. Well, we <laughs> all spend the rest of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, well, guys, today we're going back to the beginning. <laughs> Where it all started. It Back in the before time. Called... The lieutenant. <laughs> yes, we're going to talk about the lieutenant. No, That's right. Uh, we're actually going to – although that is relevant because a lot of the relationships that Gene Roddenberry um, brought to bear on the cage started on the lieutenant. Um, of course, we're talking about the original Star Trek pilot, the cage, which uh, in the way, uh, you know, not only provided the foundation, the DNA for um, what became Star Trek – but to this day, uh, is is really the bedrock on which Star Trek and all its incarnations is built on. The more Star Trek has changed, the more it stayed the same. And when you look at the cage, you realize how much uh, even contemporary Star Trek owes to um, the template that was set by the cage low those many years ago. Um, and it's you, interesting as we as we talk about this more. Um, I hope to uh, make everyone understand that. It's the relationship to the cage that makes modern Star Trek, to me, less enticing. How so? Can you expand on that? The cage is the cage, at least how Roddenberry spun it, the network's reaction to the cage was that it was too cerebral, uh, a too uh, too deep science fiction of a story, and that none of the... uh, uh, none of the actors were particularly engaging. Well, you know, it's it's interesting when we look at the cage to take a step back. You know, Gene Roddenberry, as many of you know, um, was a w- war veteran where he flew uh, during World War II. Uh, he later wrote speeches uh, for um, the chief of police of Los Angeles, uh, um, William Parker, um, which could have been a TV show in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And, and I think he tried to make it a TV show a couple well, times. And uh, then he sold to MGM uh, a show called uh, The Lieutenant. This was shortly after um, he was a writer on many different shows. But most notably, uh, he met uh, the showrunner and creator of um, Have Gun, Will Travel, uh, Sam Rolfe. Mm-hmm. And uh, Have Gun, Will Travel in many ways has some eerie parallels with The Cage. Even though it's a Western, right. it revolves around a character... Um, played by Richard Boone, called Paladin. 
And he's really one of the more fascinating characters in television history. This was a guy, every episode would generally start in San Francisco, where he was a bon vivant who was as comfortable uh, with the latest, uh, you know, ordering uh, wine and, 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 and quoting Shakespeare and, 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 and Yeats uh, as he was when he would receive a wire uh, that he was needed as a, as, a, as a mercenary generally, gun for hire, have gun, will travel, wire paladin San Francisco, and would go off on these adventures now dressed completely in black uh, on his horse and could fight and shoot and uh, was total badass gun for hire. And it was a complete counterpoint to his life as basically a dandy in uh, San Francisco. Uh, he was basically Iron Man. He, he, he it was a remarkable, <laughs> remarkable character. And it was one of the few shows of the time in which the Native Americans were not depicted as evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, often uh, it, would, it would depict racism and, and um, uh, basically um, he, Paladin would often expose the idiocy and the foolishness of sort of racism and sexism and, uh, you know, other such vices. And uh, it is it is an extremely literate series. It's extremely entertaining. And Paladin, at his heart, was a sort of a combination of, of, of the passion of Kirk, uh, um, the, the, the conscience of McCoy, and the intelligence of Spock. Mm-hmm. And if you see many of the episodes written by Gene, you will re- see very... A lot of the, the staples of Star Trek reflected in his episodes, including the name Robert April, which first appeared in an episode of uh, Have Gone, Will Travel. I can't say enough good things about the show. Maybe one time we'll actually do an episode on Have Gone, Will Travel mm-hmm. because if not us, who? Um, but uh, uh, I, I strongly recommend uh, that you know so much of what you found in the cage. And then, of course, uh, Gene goes on. Uh, he has an idea for a show that involves a cruise ship in which the cruise ship is a character. The ship is a character, much as the Enterprise would become. Sort of and like the love boat? And then, yeah, very much okay. very much like it was a precursor to the love boat. And of course, Herbie the love boat. he comes up okay. with, a, uh, <laughs> after seeing Vincent Price and Master of the World, uh, comes up with a, a show set in Victorian times of a dirigible mm-hmm. uh, traveling through, um, uh, you know, uh, going on adventures. Right. Also a precursor to Star Trek, which never sold. But ultimately, it's the cage which we remember which endears ourself, which is now legend. Let's talk about The Cage. Well, the thing is that throughout um, uh, Roddenberry's early career uh, in writing scripts, he got so many network notes that were basically keeping him from dealing with um, uh, objectionable subjects, perhaps, or, uh, you know, uh, strange characters that they they didn't think that the audience would... uh, uh, agree to or, you know, various notes that would just stop his creativity. And well, so, what was the key to that, Darren? The key was uh, an episode of Lieutenant, which he did one season of, uh, right. with actually, which Nichelle Nichols was in, called To Set It Right with Dennis Hopper. And in this episode of, uh, of The Lieutenant, it dealt with racism mm-hmm. in the armed forces, at which point the network uh, aired it, but canceled the show. When, right. And and it went, and this was the, the first example of Roddenberry really being Roddenberry, because they weren't going to air it. It's much like what happened with Blackish recently. Right. And uh, Roddenberry got the NAACP involved, mm-hmm. who thought it was important, and they guilted the network into doing it. But the network was so pissed at Roddenberry right. for being manipulated, they, and the armed forces were no longer going to let them film at Camp Pendleton because they felt that it was uh, misrepresenting uh, racism in the military. So Roddenberry thought for a second and uh, he thought something like this 
You know, back in the uh, early days uh, when I was reading stories by Jonathan Swift, uh, you know, the stories about uh, Gulliver and his adventures, um, Jonathan Swift would take uh, current uh, political situations and he would couch them in these fantastical environments and he would trick people into reading stories about things that directly related to them, but because it was happening to tiny people or gigantic people, uh, they wouldn't understand that it was actually about them. And that is what his he says his pattern was for coming up with Star Trek, that if you could talk about uh, racism or you know bigotry or uh, hatred from the point of view of a little green man, then perhaps he could get it past the censors and the networks, and that's what his objective was. Now, what were some of the scripts that uh, were in contention for the pilot? You guys remember? <clears throat> <laughs> well, you, you wrote the, you wrote the book, The 50-Year Mission. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, he had, uh, you know, obviously the one that he wrote was uh, The Menagerie, then later changed to The Cage. Yeah. Um, because menagerie was was a difficult word to understand. Right. Much like license revoked became well, license to kill. kill. That's right. <laughs> revoked, very difficult word. So, you know, it became, I love that, you know, it, it's sort of like changing something like City on Age Forever to the city, you know. <laughs> right. That would have been the episode if it had been on Voyager. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> now, I know there were other scripts uh, in contention for the second pilot, uh, which were Mud's Women and... Uh, uh, the Omega well, Glory. Uh, uh, were, were those in play for the cage as well? Yeah, because Oscar Katz tells the story about how, you know, they presented a number of pitches. And one of them was the idea that it was, in fact, Wagon Train and that mm -hmm. there was a woman who was away from Earth who was having problems away from home. You know, she's the guest star. The, you know, the captain, uh, you know, helps her work through these problems. And at the end, you know, she, we never see her again. Um, but there were a variety of, of, of different shows. But the reason that they chose... The Cage was because it was the most complicated right. show, and they figured if they could pull off The Cage, they could pull off anything they were pitching them. Right. Because they talked a good game, Oscar Katz, Herb Solo, sure. Gene Roddenberry. Um, but, uh, but they wanted to see if they could but do they it. Wanted to see, but I think I can do it. Here among a billion stars, a lonely ship streaks along an endless path. It's the mammoth starship Enterprise. Follow her trackless journey each week on Star Trek. William Shatner stars as Captain James Kirk, Starship Commander, and Leonard Nimoy stars as Science Officer Spock, half Earthling, half Vulcanian. There are hazards that beset the Enterprise and its crew on board ship and on alien planets. Don't miss Star Trek in color. So they wanted to see if they could do it, and um, uh, so they chose The Cage, which was obviously a very difficult show to pull off, particularly in that time, uh, given the state of special effects. you got to remember, it was before 2001. I mean, the, the, the state of the art was the Jupiter II and Lost in Space. Yeah, and, uh, you know, that was a lot of the uh, atmosphere that Roddenberry was combating against. I mean, that's one of the reasons why CBS didn't pick up Star Trek, because, well, we already have a sci-fi show. We have Lost in Space. So see how that worked out yeah. for them. Yeah. Well, they were inventing the wheel. I mean, they were really inventing yeah. the wheel. You know, not only with um, 
uh, visual effects, but in terms of makeup effects, in terms of casting, um, the role of women, because of course, you know, obviously the stories of, you know, later on about uh, Jean being very sexist and all that, you know, uh, th that has been chronicled in many gossipy tomes. But uh, the reality is, uh, you know, creating this role for Majel, who, yes, was his girlfriend at the time, but uh, uh, but um, creating a role where she was second in command mm -hmm. and uh, um, really a force of nature and, and, and completely empowered, strong, um, unemotional. She was basically Spock. Right. She was basically Spock. And, you know, when you look at the depiction of women at the time who, you know, were basically either mothers or secretaries or, you know, if or they arm were, candy or arm candy, you know, this was an incredible leap forward. Uh, and, and as such to the point that, um, you know, ultimately she didn't make it past the first pilot because it was so um, ambitious or ahead well, of its time. Well, you know, Certainly Roddenberry spun the story about that uh, into the fact that they couldn't they couldn't uh, believe that a woman would be in that role. He, now, cer he certainly went that way. You talked to late others, 70s. and there's certainly a feeling that they didn't think Majel was particularly good, and that they and resented that, the fact that he cast his girlfriend. Exactly. He was trying to keep that to himself and not let them. But you know, also he sort of had to sacrifice a character on the altar. And was it going to be Spock, or was right. it going to be Number One? So I decided to keep the Vulcan and marry the woman. It <laughs> was his line that he would say. Um, but I think it's interesting because. Honestly, I don't think number one comes across very well in the episode. She's not served well. She's not served well because she's, she's not jealous. written well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She doesn't. She doesn't truly have a lot to do. Right. Um, you know, Spock would always provide a a. Uh, he was. I don't, know, I don't know if he was the angel or the devil on Kirk's shoulder, but he was one of them. Right. He was um, kind of devilish. Yeah, he was. Because you look at him in Mud's of. Women, you know, when he's let, you know, perving out on the women as they, you know, uh, walk out of the the transporter room, and he's like looking at, you know, sort of that hubba hubba look over at, uh, at, at 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 Kirk and every and McCoy and everything, and it's like that is not the Spock that we came to know and love later on. It's really not. But but Spock as a his function on the show became. Um, he was a foil for Kirk. And number one wasn't really a foil for Pike. That's right. true. So she didn't really have a – she had a characterization, but what she didn't have truly was a character. And now, in fairness, that was a pilot. Yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't about her. Right. Um, but I can – I'm, I'm very, you know, I'm hip to your groove on this one. But I will say that I do feel that – there were, before we talk about so much that was great about it, along the lines of what you're saying, there were some conceptual mistakes in the sense that, you know, they did play this great arc where Pike was carrying the weariness of command on his shoulders. Right. And the only person he could confide in was the ship's doctor, uh, played by John Hoyt. Now, by going with a much older character actor, it didn't really give him a contemporary in the way that Shatner and D. Kelly would later or Shatner and Nimoy would uh, play their scenes. And so it gave it a paternal relationship. And yep. I don't think that necessarily served it well, even though I do like the scene where he confesses to John Hoyt, you know, maybe I don't want to be captain. It's, right. it's the same arc that didn't work in Star Trek Beyond, where, you know, he's tired of being in space and right. doesn't want to be captain. Like for Pike, it's great because it's really one episode. But you want the captain of your ship to actually be hornblower and want to yeah, embrace. especially in those days yeah. uh, when television shows were about you know more or less heroes, right? And and you didn't want to have an angst-ridden internalizing uh, main character 
you couldn't, you know, you couldn't readily identify with them. And I liked that about Pike. Um, I found that really interesting, and it's maybe it was also I I liked Jeffrey Hunter's performance mm-hmm. in that, and it's certainly Star Trek comes back to it um, in Balance of Terror. I mean, it's, sure. you can there's an obvious line kind of between those two characters and and between Kirk and Pike, and the and at least um, the sentiment that they're expressing and the and the, right. the emotions that they're going through, if not the specific scenario. Well, Ira Bear says something I think very insightful in my book Fifth Year Mission, where he says. You know, what Jeffrey Hunter, what you forget now, what Jeffrey Hunter brought to bear at the time was he was a movie star. Right. He was in The Longest Day. You know, he was in, uh, obviously, The Searchers. So you knew Jeffrey Hunter. And he was like a matinee idol. Mm-hmm. He was a really good-looking guy, right? And 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 so what, he brings something very different to what Shatner did. Because even though Shatner had been on these shows, you know, he was on these failed TV shows. Right. He had a small role in Judgment in Nuremberg. No. He wasn't a household name the way that Jeffrey Hunter was. I mean, it, it, you know, Jeffrey Hunter's like, you know, if you're doing... True Detective 1966, you'd put Jeffrey Hunter in it, right? Right. So it's it's very interesting. Just look at the other people that they were looking to cast. Lloyd Bridges, you know, who right. just come off a successful run on Sequest, who said he didn't want to go anywhere C-Hunt. near science C-Hunt. fiction. Leslie C-Hunt. Nielsen, right? Right. Um, yeah. Who were some of the other people? I'm Jack Jack Lord. They Jack couldn't Lord. come to financial terms with him. He wanted too much money. Good Lord. You imagine? <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah. Can you imagine Star Trek with Jack Lord? I mean, yes. I, yes, I, I don't know, man. Book him, Spock. You know <laughs> what? I, also, I think yeah. is is w- where the cage actually benefited was the perception of science fiction in media had begun to change in the in the late 50s obviously you had forbidden planet which is clearly a template for star trek mm-hmm. you had the twilight zone on television which was written by a, a fairly not just rod serling but all the other esteemed writers that had come on board and they were so you were looking towards star trek or science fiction novelists or playwrights or things like that but those were the antholo- that was an anthology format, and then you had the Outer Limits as well. That Star Trek was sort of going to be the first weekly television show that wasn't an anthology. That was going to be a prestige show. Mm-hmm. It wasn't going to be Rocky Jones Space Ranger or something like mm-hmm. that. It was it was an attempt to to do a thoughtful. It was conceived of as being a thoughtful, uh, meaningful program that yeah. could compete. Dekittify it. They would have right. pitched it as premium and, cable. Right. And I, I think that's yeah, yeah. very that was very interesting, and the, the parallels between Roddenberry had to have looked at Forbidden Planet because there's so many, you know, the crew of a ship that's ongoing. You just look at it; he was taking notes. I think right, right, <laughs> and, and and that was I mean, and and what was Forbidden Planet? But it was a Shakespeare adaptation right. of of The Tempest, so it showed that I think Roddenberry in his mind was looking towards, which is why so many Star Trek writers were novelists and playwrights and poached indeed from Twilight Zone or. These other prestige genre programs. I, one uh, one little note about Hunter's performance. It's interesting that um, the reason why we have this loud, shouty, emotional Spock is because of Hunter's portrayal. His, Hunter's internalization um, meant that mm. uh, Nimoy, as an actor, um, couldn't go the same direction that Hunter was. And so Spock had to be different, had to make his character different. He had to be at full intensity. Yes, correct. The women. <laughs> the women. <It's, laughs> I mean, you know, as we look at it now, it seems comical. But at the time, it is a valid 
thing. If, sure. if you're playing A, I can't play A. I have to play if B. If you don't have the benefit of knowing where this character is going to go, right. then yes, it totally makes sense against right. Jeffrey Hunter. Whereas against Shatner, you can't, you can't out histrionic yeah. Shatner. Exactly. So he, he, he needs tried. to underplay it, which, which which he obviously learned very early. And and Scott Mance, uh, the, critic, uh, the film critic, uh, TV critic, makes a really good point. He said Shatner emerged in the role fully formed. Right. Shatner played... Kirk, the same way from the first episode. From line one. Yeah, from from the moment he shows up and where no man has gone before, mm-hmm. it never changes. You know, it gets a little broader by the time you get to the movies and a lot because he's become an icon. Right. You know, and and, and but 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 it never really evolves in a great way because it's so fully formed. Mm-hmm. Whereas Nimoy needed to find that character over time, and over that first season, you really see that character evolving until he finally settles into what that role is. And then we talked about D. Kelly. The thing is, Gene, to his credit, wanted to hire D. Kelly from the outset. It was Bob Butler, Robert Butler, right. the director, who talked him out of it. And then James Goldstone, who talked him out of it again right. on Where No Man Has Gone Before. Hiring so, uh, Paul Fix. Paul Fix for um, the role of the doctor in that, which is equally a bad choice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, it's, uh, I have an interesting uh, memo here from Roddenberry. To, uh, it's a, a letter from Roddenberry to Paul Fix. Um, Telling him about the uh, decision. He's calling to, you now. <laughs> yeah, to, talking about the decision to let Paul Fix go and recast, uh, re recharacter the role. He says, uh, "Dear Paul, as you probably know by now, Star Trek will be on the air this coming September. Due to changes in format, budget structure, and character concepts, we cannot pick up a number of options, including yours." But we do hope that Dr. Piper will reappear in future stories and hope we will be fortunate enough to find you interested and available at that time. Let me thank you for your important contribution in the making of the Star Trek pilot. As mentioned many times before, I value your talent and ability highly, and it will always be a particular pleasure for me when we are able to work together. Cordially yours, Gene Roddenberry. Well, that's that's a pretty good your fired note. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm still waiting for that uh, reappearance. Right? <laughs> you know, I think another another thing that I found always interesting, even as a kid, when I first learned about the cage and the difference between the cage and the menagerie and all that, was the fact that that story begins after the Enterprise has had a great tragedy. Right. You're coming off of the 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 mission to Rigel, which was the week before, a right. couple right. weeks ago. Uh, Pike has lost men, not yeah. just one or two, but like six people. It was a route. Yeah. It was yeah. They got they got they got their asses handed to them, and he's you know he's he's in the midst of of feeling guilt and he's mm-hmm. he's recriminations and could he have done something better? And I always thought that was a really interesting choice as your for your pilot. You're you're coming off of a you're on the downslope. You're all, you yeah. are on the downslope, and it, it, for guys who had fought in World War II and, mm-hmm. and like Gene Roddenberry, that they had lost battles. You know, and that's where Star Trek began was sort of at the 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 a, a place of demoralization, and I, I've always thought that was an interesting way to go, especially for a pilot of a show of this of this kind. Well, it it immediately opens up the world. It, it immediately it 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 sets you in the middle of this uh, story, and you're hearing about stuff that happened last week, right? But you haven't seen last week. But that's such a great point about you know. Having gone through the war, that yeah. he would be, and I never thought about it like that. The, you know, it would just be about something they don't really talk about that much, but that you feel that he's still suffering from the weight of losing these boys under his command. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
It's very subtle, but it's it's immensely effective because, of course, now we think about the Viking and you know him protecting Vina. When we lose sight of what that Rigel battle must have been, that right. beautiful matte painting. Right. But um, that's really interesting. And, we, to and consider. It's, it's echoed in, in Balance of Terror when Kirk sure. is is asking himself, you know, why me? Right. And there's that great. I, I'm sure this came out of the military experience of not just Roddenberry but others that had worked on the show. And there, I always felt like in the first season of Star Trek, there's definitely this this element of of these are seasoned professionals that have have seen some bad along with the the good yeah. they're doing in the universe and i think that was definitely something that was it it might not have been overt but it was in the dna of the of the program well it's something that's very different um between i think the 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 writers of the original series and particularly roddenberry and then um what's happened later, even, you know, in, in Next Generation or, or Deep Space Nine, that, you know, those writers and those directors had actually, they had they had been soldiers and airmen. Um, they had been sailors. They had mm-hmm. been cops. They had seen these things and experienced these things in a real way. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, that has happened in television has just been, um, you have cop shows, you know, written by people who have never worn a badge or or people writing about. And this is different now because we've, you know, obviously there are a lot of veterans who are now kind of getting out into the sure. into the into this industry. But, you know, you, you had people writing about the things they had seen other people write about. Right. And it was very yeah, you authentic. Have the danger of, yeah. of cop shows being written by people who have watched cop shows. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, it, it's so interesting because I feel like with the cage, uh, you know, also Roddenberry doesn't get the credit he deserves um, because if you look at the Irwin Allen shows, it's a flying sorcerer. It's, it's with family Robinson in space. What Roddenberry did was he really tried to portray a realistic view of the future. He brought in his cousin Harvey Lynn from the Rand Company mm-hmm. to help uh, come up with concepts. You know, and if you look at these early memos, constantly he's going back to what's realistic. You know, he he. Um, you know, postulates the idea of a giant computer brain that controls the enterprise, and maybe we're not leaning into that enough, and how it would show us where our missions are and where we're going. And I mean, this is long before this is when you know uh, computers filled giant, you know, they were punch cards and they filled giant rooms. And you know, he had the idea of Siri, you know, and right. Wikipedia. I mean, it was it's and this is 1966, and it's remarkable. And what felt like such forward thinking at the time was then people look back and say, oh, it's dated and silly. Is remarkable, pr- remarkably prescient, well, and, and then twenty years later, and, it would sound exactly like his wife. Yes, that's right. Go figure. Yeah. And uh, there was always a role for Majel, and um, you know, and and that's the case with so many things, whether it be uh, the communicators, which you know presaged uh, uh, mobile phones. You, you talked about that, um, but even sliding doors. You know, now we look at it like oh, whatever. But at the time, grocery stores didn't have sliding doors, things we take for granted. So uh, really, when you say that Roddenberry was a futurist, you know, and and we, we talked a little bit about also anticipating social media and how to manipulate the crowd. You know, he was the original, uh, uh, you know, in, in a way before there was a Facebook, he knew how to manipulate the fans into doing his bidding to get what he wanted. And that was uh, pretty remarkable. And I, I don't say that in a critical way. I say that with great admiration. But let's also remember that he was also a brilliant creative producer. And I say this because the big uh, budget problem that he had was landing the ship on a planet every week. He he tried to figure out a way to um, make that economical, and he couldn't until 
he realized one thing. What if we had a device that could magically transport our characters down to the planet? We don't have to land. We don't have to do anything. We can just get them in, get them down, and get on with the story. And he came up with the transporter based on saving money. And I think that's absolutely brilliant. Well, but you know it's what's so interesting about that? Technology. Yeah. But it also yeah. is, is, is uh, you know, other than warp speed, it's kind of the one thing that hasn't uh, happened yet or probably mm-hmm. will never happen because unlike other things, it came out of a story need. It came out right. of budgetary need. So it wasn't created based on real science. It was created based on, you real know. Real no money. Uh, yeah, a, a narrative need and, 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 and a um, financial imp- impetus, whereas a lot of this other stuff came out of, you know, real research and, and anticipating future trends and where things were going and, and the advice of scientists who he engaged in, later people like Isaac Asimov and stuff like that. So it's, it's Although very I interesting. Think, uh, sometimes the advice of scientists was there just so he could say that he had the advice of scientists. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I think there was a lot of that being played just for sort of uh, street value. But, uh, you know, right. I think when you look at Sick bay. A lot of that did come from Harvey Lynn, you know, mm-hmm. the diagnostic bed and the right. way that sick bay would work and stuff. So yeah, I think later on a lot of it because, uh, you know, I think that um, like by the time you get to Star Trek: The Motion Picture in the wormhole, he's sort of doing a lot of, um, you know, oh, I got Jessica von Puttermaker here telling me that this is the way it would really happen. And, Jessica you know. von Puttermaker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of his. <laughs> I'm sure you mean Jesko von Puttkammer. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> But I like your pronunciation. Buttermaker was a killer miniature golf player. Let me and he also made great peanut butter. <laughs> Buttermaker's peanut butter. It's peanut butter by Buttermaker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> Star Trek is brought but, you to you know, by... Let's talk also about the ideal, the idea that he it, that, it, that un, un, um, unrestrained power, you know, mm-hmm. that, that it could lead to destruction. Mean, what about the, the enormous message? power of illusion? Uh, you know, of the Telosians, you know, uh, led to the downfall of their race yeah. when they grew to, you know, power. I mean, it's a sort of childhood end kind of thing. You mean the crow? <coughs> well, it is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's basically Forbidden Planet. Yes. Okay. So, uh, but it's it's even sadder than the crow. The Telosians didn't destroy themselves. Right. They just became useless. They became TV watchers. You know, they, they became, became Twitterers. Uh, yeah. They well, became a race of non-creators. If you look at the, the cage through the lens of today, it's even more powerful, yeah. given the right. metaphor you've just drawn for us. It's basically a big metaphor for Facebook. Really. <laughs> and it's yeah. so funny because I think if you look <laughs> at a lot of, I think if you look at a lot of Star Trek pilots, that that their their metaphor or that their allegory might be more impactful today. Like at the time. You look at Farpoint in the in the late '90s, the solar starfish. You know they were being used by the society. You know for you know basically to create power, but we didn't care if we were hurting them. It's like okay, whatever. But now it's like you think about it. Of course, the you know Trump administration would be like, yeah, who cares about global warming? We got these solar starfish to create power, and you know even though they're sentient beings, we're going to exploit them until they die. You know it's like as it long feels as they like... hold hands at the end, I think that's the thing that matters. What? I just you know because the as long as they hold they, tentacles, they hold hands, hands. they're little yeah, tentacles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, oh, it's joy. funny just because the whole idea of you oh know animals and a species being wiped out, you know, it, it feels more relevant in the broader context, you know, today, and and you know, and 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 uh, 
than even in 1997, where it felt a little just silly and kind of, you know, that whole far point, the denouement is kind of like goofy. I mean, it was funny because the Squire of Gothos ripoff part was much more interesting with Q yep. than, you know, the, the Solar Starfish. Um, you know, then you go to something and like... That was, but that was Dorothy's. Dorothy's right. part was the Solar Starfish, and right. Roddenberry came yeah. in and threw in Q. Yeah. So he could get credit on right, it. Right. I mean, it's so funny. He wanted to take an hour show and make it 90 minutes or two hours so that he would get the shared credit on the pilot and came up with, and then ripped off Squire Regalas. Yeah. I think this test will be very interesting for my residual check. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> let's also bring up the fact that after the production of the first pilot, uh, it was basically thrown out. And they made a second pilot, and that's what actually sold the show. But Roddenberry's later use of that first pilot is absolutely brilliant. brilliant. One of perhaps one of the most brilliant things ever in the history of television, and, as far as a production standpoint. Yes. And yeah. and it, the fact that in one fell swoop he saves the he saves the cost of the of the pilot and integrates it into the into the cost of the series, and makes it into a two part episode, and expands the universe immediately, showing yeah. that this happened 11 years ago. What, what Darren is talking about, for those of you who may not know, is, of course, the cage, the original unaired pilot. Um, at the end of the first season, Star Trek was way over budget and behind schedule, and they, they, they needed to do something clever. And Gene Roddenberry conceived the idea to take the cage pilot and incorporate it into a two-part episode called The Menagerie, which would serve as flashbacks, not in a Shades of Grey way. We're like, whoa, remember when I was injured and we went on this mission? <laughs> and, and, and it was complicated by the fact, of course, that Shatner was not in this pilot. So your series lead, you know, and so much about this pilot didn't fit the aesthetic of the, the show they were making. So it is an incredible, audacious achievement on Roddenberry's part to have created the menagerie and find a way to thread the cage through those two episodes. And in fact, that's how we all m- learned about the cage because all we knew was the menagerie growing well, up. Well, actually, I could, because I went to one of those Roddenberry uh, uh, lectures that he did at colleges, I went to one at Kane College in 1976, I think, or maybe it was 75. He showed that original cage pilot on 16 millimeter. And it was unfreaking believable because mm. you know I had already seen m- the Menagerie many times, and um, you know seeing these uh, scenes that no one had ever seen before. Yeah. Was I wish there com- were a few. Oh my God! Well, I remember it when was it amazing. Aired, and he had that. He presented it, and he kind of came out. He did his whole right. like, and this is the on case, the engine these, room of the next right. generation. Yeah. These yeah. these are sets from some of our Star Trek movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, uh, it, I remember like just being so excited to to see that. Remember, kids, this was back in a time when. You didn't just go, wow, you know, the cage just dropped on Netflix. I think I'll watch it. It was like, you know, I had to yeah. make an appointment like, to watch it. To yeah. watch well, it. before that, I'm sure Rob and, and Darren remember, it came out on home video and they had not been able to find, they only had the work print. Right. So all the footage from the cage was in black and white. Right. And the only stuff that was in color was the stuff they cut from, they took from the menagerie. So it was years later they ended up finding it and then they put the whole thing out in color. But the one that was, it was said, the original unseen Star Trek pilot, right. it came out on, on, on home video and it was part in black and white and part in color. Yep. And that was, you know, not that we had the episodes memorized anyway, but it was a great way to see what was in the cage and what was in the menagerie. Well, I also think that what the menagerie, the two-part menagerie did was create this idea of canon. Mm-hmm. That, that Star Trek, the idea that there is a canon to Star Trek, there is a continuity. 
Nobody would have ever cared about yeah. any of that. No one cared about continuity, about TV show continuity. Maybe Sherlock Holmes fans cared about continuity in, right. the, in the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle or whatever. But as soon as they said, what you're seeing is from 11 years ago, yeah. oh, so Pike was captain of the Enterprise 11 years ago. Spock served under him 11 years ago. And there was there was changes in the set. And the ship looks slightly different, but it's still the same ship. The, the, the transporter room sounded different when you mm-hmm. got beamed down. So suddenly there was Star Trek history. Mm. And there was Star Trek canon. And if you were a kid... It became a legend. It, it was, yes. It became a legend. And for somebody like myself watching it, I was like... I, I was beside myself, and 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 all of my Star Trek love and interest had the idea of canon baked into it. Mm-hmm. And so, as you watch, like they would mention the United Earth Space Probe mm-hmm. Agency in the first season because they hadn't come up with the United Federation of Planets yet, right. you're like, in your mind, how does the United Earth Space Pro- Probe Agency relate to the Federation? Right. And there were all of these questions, and that was it what doesn't. that was like real life. That was history, mm-hmm. and and that was what made Star Trek the motion picture so interesting and all the books and the technical manuals and everything that came out. So in your mind, you had this tapestry of Star Trek that leapt beyond the shows. And and if something jumped out at you as something that didn't quite fit, you just sort of, you know, wrote it down as, well, that's just because I don't know what actually happened yet. You don't know yet. They haven't (laughs) haven't defined it. That's why the best of Trek anthologies where people are reading it, trying to make sense. What's so incredible is this show from 1964 or for you know 65 65 yeah. from over you know 50 years ago he's still serving as the fodder now i mean whether you like discovery or don't like it i mean they're still using you know pike now number 1 and i have to say that rebecca romaine looks fantastic mm-hmm. as number 1 i i have high hopes for that character i mean i worked with rebecca obviously on librarians i think she's terrific and um i think that um uh it's amazing to me that you know, this is still it's still there. The the the, the sun in which the whole universe, is, you know, awesome. orbits. Uh, uh, you know that the, the cage remains this sort of touched on. And it was the same thing for the JJ. You know, of all the characters to 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 bring back, it was Captain was Pike. Pike. You know, for an actor that people thought was dry and bland, and Jeffrey Hunter, boy, he sure. Uh, uh, you know, he's had now two actors with Anson Mount and uh, Bruce Greenwood playing him. It's it's really remarkable. Like I said, whether you like it or not, it it that the cage is is still this touchstone for for all these uh, all these things. Well, it's, I actually just find it interesting that Roddenberry um, decided not only that you know they needed to recast the captain, but to recharacter um, that it wasn't Shatner is now playing Pike. That well, they a, didn't decide to recast. It was Jeffrey Hunter. Right, oh no, who, who said he could? Whose wife back, said but, this show sucks. Uh, yeah. you're, it's embarrassing. Jeffrey is but a movie star. Jeffrey is a movie star. He's not available, you know, and but he was no longer under contract. Kirk, Kirk, as opposed to Shatner, is now just playing Pike. Mm-hmm. I think was an, a really interesting choice, which of course opened them right. up for the possibility later of of doing the Menagerie. And I think a lot of that came from Shatner himself. Shatner himself, after seeing the original pilot, um, wanted the main character to be more of that hero type, but somebody else, not. Yeah, but she's right. They could have just easily, knowing that the pilot was never going to air, right. to say, "Okay, you're now Captain Pike." Right. You know, we're recasting. I mean, how many times have we seen a different actor? You know, like in "I Dream a Genie" or sure. you know, "Bewitched," 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 where they recast the actor as Darren. You know, they just—it was common of the era. 
But no, Shatner is a different character. He's Captain Kirk. He's not Captain Pike. Yeah. You know? Well, it's interesting, too, that they made weird cosmetic changes, that, like the, the little the little War of the Worlds weapon view screens that were right. attached to everyone's stations. They didn't have to lose those. Those were actually kind of cool. But then they did lose those, and they upgraded the, the phasers, and they, mm-hmm. they changed things around. And I kind of have always wondered, like, Okay, I understand that the, you change the cast, but and the color palette especially. Well, That's because true. then you have Jerry Fennerman come on with the beginning with Corbinite maneuver, you know, which obviously is so different than Ernie Haller, who's at the end of his career. But it was also at a point where NBC wanted to sell color television sets. Yeah, right. And they said, "We want you to have the most colorful thing you can have, so that we can sell this to get more people to buy sets." Yeah, but the cage is pretty colorful. Not really. Not I don't know. Really. I, mean, I think you look at that matte painting. You look at the green girl. Right. Yeah, um, but it's compared to the rest of the season, it's pretty monotone. Well, we should, you know, we should talk about Susan Oliver and the Green Girl because, of course, mm-hmm. it's one of the most indelible and iconic images in all of Star Trek. Uh, partially because every episode ended with that shot right. of sure. her uh, at the end. Nice but, place you have here, Mr. But, Pike. you know, also for those of us who were uh, 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 men of a certain age, you know, growing up with the green girl, the green Orion slave girl, uh, uh, you know, and, and what I find fascinating is that Susan Oliver was so ahead of her time. She was a character actor who was working a lot in television, but she was an aviator. She was one of the first female directors. It, it's so tragic. There's a wonderful little documentary called The Green Girl mm-hmm. by George Pappy that I highly recommend because I can't do justice to her career. But um, she uh, was really a truly remarkable woman. And, you know, all I really knew about her for a long time was, uh, you know, that famous shot of her holding the sign, where are you, Oscar? Because the cage had gone so far over schedule and over budget, and she had to move on to her. And she's like, Oscar Katz said he'd be there every day and that it would definitely finish on time and she'd be able to get out to go to her next thing. And here she is, like, a gazillion days later, still working on this Fakakta pilot. And plus, you know, Gene completely lied to Everyone saying that she was a great dancer when she had no idea how to dance. And then they brought Peggy Romans in to teach her, you know, how to do the Green Orion Slave Girl dance. And um, uh, but, you know, that character where she plays the Green Orion Slave Girl and plays Avina and, you know, plays that, that, that you know, at the end, uh, you know, the, 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 it's just she is so good in that show and grounds it with the, you know, some of the other people they were looking at, like Jill St. John. Mm-hmm. It, it, all she would have been was a sex kitten. Right. You know, whereas Susan Oliver, there's so is, much. She's a real woman. Yeah. And yeah. She, the, she plays so many different aspects of a right. woman. Mm-hmm. You know, she's the, the sex pot, dr- green rind slave girl dancing. Then she's your apple pie, take her home to mom when she's right. riding horses with Pike. But then she's also the smart, intelligent, resolving herself to her fate when she's trying to explain to Pike, look, you just got to do what they tell you. Right. You know, she's and then at the end, as a even as a kid, I remember like I, I couldn't you fell in love with Susan Oliver. To yeah. me, she was one of my ultimate to this day, one of my favorite yeah. dream girls of all time. And then when you find out her fate oh, yeah. and the reveal and of her twisted body and and when she's finally the illusion falls away and she's finally revealed that they and she explains how the Telosians took her out of the wreckage, but they'd never seen a human being before, which so, I find a little dodgy because they yeah. look just like Telosians, but with well, smaller heads. Yeah. yeah, okay, but still, <laughs> but still, when you you know they tried, they kept her alive. They obviously kept her Absolutely. alive. Absolutely, but they couldn't. They didn't know how to put her back correctly. I mean, it's heartbreaking. A, it was yeah. so heartbreaking, and it yeah. was one of those things where that was, I think, what Star Trek did best, especially for us as young people, young men. 
is that it subverted your expectations all the time. Yeah. And you learn something. Like I remember at the end when uh, that episode, but also like in Arena, when you expect Kirk to do the the Gorn in and kill right. the Gorn, and he doesn't. Right. He says, you know what, maybe mm-hmm. I was wrong. Maybe I don't know what's going on. It taught on. you yeah. ethics and morality. It, yeah, it taught you ethics and morality, and, and, and it always well subverted Korean, your expectations. Well and when she's revealed at the end, as a child, that was really disturbing to me, yeah. but I also understood that it was sad. And the aliens, they tried. Yeah, like you, they just moment, didn't understand. Yeah, yeah and moment, they weren't evil. They yeah. weren't evil. They really were trying, and 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 they're portrayed as being. I mean, as kids, we called them the buttheads. The right. yeah, yeah, yeah. buttheads. Yeah. And you hated them. You hated them as a kid. Federation were the Beavises. <laughs> and then, but when you come out at the end, uh, and you realize that they are just trying to preserve what they are as people, and they're not evil. Mm-hmm. That was a revelation. And they they acted out of kindness. I mean, that's the thing. It's it's that's the thing that always struck me. I mean, there's a lot of things about that episode as a child that I found um, unsettling. A lot of like the makeup effects, honestly, mm-hmm. they're horrifying. Um, they're it's very horrifying. And, and, and state of the ending, art, it's 1965. Oh, no, 100%. How amazing are those Telosian makeups? And the, the brilliance of casting these slight women, you know, yeah. as 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 these. And then, and then, and then giving, giving the male voices, giving the male voices, or Commodore which makes pipe? something. Oh, and then what about when Commodore Mendez disappears? Right, that's freaking creepy. Yeah, I mean, was... look, the the whole thing is like it's as a child that episode, those two episodes were weirdly kind of upsetting, but I think they were upsetting in a in a good way. Um, and I think if anything, you know, what I kind of took away from that is what Rob was getting at, which is the idea of discovering at the end that um, that there is something about the villain and what the villain seems to be up to that is human and, and redeemable, um, mm-hmm. that you know kindness can come from anywhere. And that, that makes them three-dimensional, and that makes them interesting right. and not just a threat. Um, and that stuck with me. And not it the teaches only you reason. empathy, which is in right. such short supply now. And I feel like, you know, we all learned empathy from Star Trek, you know, to, to not fear other cultures, you know, to 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 care and, and invest and to learn well, from yeah, people that are different than us. Try and understand. Yeah. yeah. And it has a great, it, you know, look, it's like a Twilight Zone episode. The twist at the end is vintage Sherling. Um, and I was always blown away and I never understood until I watched The Cage how they had you know, the footage of um, uh, Pike right. going away, you know, watching right. and then going away mm-hmm. with, um, uh, you know, staying with on the Venus, planet, yeah. you know, how it worked so well in the menagerie until then I saw the actual end of the cage. And again, how brilliantly they use that yeah. to, 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 you know, to give, you know, Pike back his body where it was just, you know, the original engineering of the cage was they let Vina have and, this And illusion. how wonderful it was in the menagerie for the Spock character to show the total devotion to his former captain is completely moving and Starbase operations, amazing. Starbase operations, Starbase yeah. operations. And it made it a story about Kirk and Spock. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah totally. Ultimately, it was a story about amazing. Kirk and Spock. And uh, Commodore Mendez, who, remember when... Oh, Malachi Throne. Malachi, Malachi Throne. Remember when he came and met with us? I mean, we were so excited. We were going to use, we want to use Malachi Throne to play this producer in Free Enterprise, this move, this the guy who ran the studio where the Robert character worked. And we wanted to, the original idea for the film was to populate it with Star Trek actors. And he was one of the first and he came in to meet with us. And what did he tell us that was so crushing? I'm too classy a guy to play a guy this sleazy. But my son is an actor. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it was, it was so, we were so excited to meet him and, and he, he was so, he had such a great 
It was such a great But he said, I came presence. here to meet with you. And we're like, why? If you were just going to turn that on? I wanted to meet the guys who wrote the script. Yeah, he loved the script. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he just wouldn't play a sleazy B-movie. it's so funny in retrospect because you think about all these Star Trek actors. Like, remember we wanted Barbara Luna from Mirror Mirror to play um, Marlena Mar- because it was insp- clearly inspired by her character. And uh, we ended up casting Deborah von Valkenberg from The Warriors and Streets of Fire. But, you know, now you see Barbara Luna. She's like... My agent never told me. Right. I never knew. I would have done it in a heartbeat. It's one of the great disappointments of my career that I didn't get to do that role. I mean, it's so... I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, Endeavor was great. But it would have been so great to have Shatner and Barbara Luna together on screen, you know, after all those years. Um, so, you know, the interesting trivia about The Green Girl, of course, is Majel tells that familiar story about um, how they kept color correcting the Green Girl, so she would come back in well, dailies, normal, but before that... But the funny thing is, it wasn't uh, footage of uh, Susan Oliver. It was footage of Majel yeah, with yeah. the green uh, makeup on. And it, ke- it kept coming back uh, from the lab completely pink, just like regular flesh tones. And apparently this happened two or three more times. And finally, they, they called the lab up. What the hell is going on? Where are we using the wrong? They tried various different shades of green to see if it would work, but they figured that it just wasn't registering on the film stock for some reason. Uh, but uh, they called the lab up and saying, "Oh, well, we we thought we thought you were just doing something really wrong, and so we were correcting that for you." And so finally, they they got uh, green that looked uh, good on on screen. But originally, she was supposed to be yellow. Well, I, I have a. I, Interestingly, have a memo from Roddenberry. The planet of the jaundice people. (laughs) (laughs) It says, uh, here's a uh, November 24th, 1964, uh, to Fred Phillips, head of the makeup department from Gene Roddenberry. Uh, suggest we consider making up our slaves in Orion scenes with the same yellow makeup as used for Leonard Nimoy. Also, are we still considering black type wigs here? What would it cost us in makeup time and trouble if we used some of our extra false uh, false ears on the Orion slaves in this scene? Gene Roddenberry. So at every moment he was trying to cut corners and try and figure out what things were looking you like. You know, and we were talking about how great Susan Oliver was in that role. And it's funny because if you look at any of the other actresses who played Grant, whether it be Yvonne Craig in Whom Gods Destroy, mm-hmm. Rachel Nichols in the Star Trek movie, uh, Enterprise had a few... None of them ever had that ineffable quality that Susan Oliver had. No. You know, never came close. You know, you could paint a sexy girl green as we did at Rob's bachelor party, and it's great. Right. But um, It was great. <laughs> but, but it's not, it lacks something that Susan Oliver brought because it's not just about being a sexy well, green girl. It's about a quality. There's well, also a thing that, that, that Gene Roddenberry brought, and I don't think we can lose sight of that, in that, she was never in any of those scenes. She was never just the sexy green girl. an object, right? Right. She like, and she wasn't just that character. That character was a representation. I mean, she's like you know Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder. It's like, you know, <laughs> she's a, she's a dude wow, that's a stretch. Dude, like, like you know, playing another dude. Like the the character has layers. It's a role upon a role upon right. a role. Yeah, yeah. And you know what must be going through Susan Oliver's mind has got to be like what. All of those things that are informing that performance. Mm. So if you're just playing, you know, the the Orion Green Girl, if it, it, you're never going to get that's uh, what Susan Oliver brought to it. That's one of the things that I am overly uptight about about modern Star Trek, is that these sort of symbols that we've seen over and over again of 
for example, the green girl or guys in red shirts, things like that. These are things that are supposedly known in the, you know, the vast uh, world as being Star Trek, but they don't know what they actually mean. They, they know the surface of it. They know that, oh, well, there's a sexy green woman there that, that Kirk has, uh, has sex with or something like that. Without any understanding without of any understanding what that it that's meant. not it at it, all. It's an irony. Well, I it's think a the, terrible irony if you think about it, because she's this beautiful green girl, right? She's like she is presented as this incredible sex symbol, right? And like, and as you said, we see her in the end titles all the time, and right. so she sticks in our minds, and right. we associate that image. But the truth of her that is revealed at the end, you know, couldn't be farther away from that image that's being projected. So there's a there's a deep irony. Well, it's rooted in story because, of course, it goes back to the conversation with the doctor where he's saying, you know, maybe I, you know, don't want to be a starship captain at all. And, you know, he's saying, oh, maybe you want what you're going to be a traitor and a green Orion animal women, you know, and, and and the funny thing is that in the cage version, the green woman is the predator. Yes, very she much. She is so. the sexual predator right. of men, yes. which is wonderful because it's not this kind of '60s yeah. sexist. Uh, you know, she is absolutely the predator, preying on his insecurities, mm-hmm. and you know, and he ultimately, you know, he rebuffs her. Yeah. So it's it, it's this thing that's considered like because now I remember they rebranded the toys. They didn't want to call them slave women, right? Right. You know, because that was not politically incorrect. It's it, it it fails to understand exactly what that character is. And again, the fact is, this is an important part of Star Trek storytelling because these are women that have been enslaved by the Regillians and being sold as property. It's a story about slavery. It's not some kind of, you know, uh, um, sexist or, 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 you know. It's not kinda, a space brothel. It's, <laughs> right, yeah, it's not being used as, as, as like to, you know, be like some kind of. Uh, titillating, titillating yeah. at all, and and so it's like, yeah, oh well, they're animal women. We're not going to call them slave women, girls anymore, you know. Well, 50 slave years, women, <laughs> fifty plus years on, so much of Star Trek has been that it's been infantilized. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's been turned into the the people's understanding, the the the, the public at large's understanding of all of this stuff is is so superficial, mm-hmm. and and I think that's really, especially in the last decade of Star Trek, Star Trek has been. We have to make it have more mass appeal. It's been homogenized. It's been homogenized, and they've they've taken away all of the thoughtful literary elements that used to be inherent in the show, right. and it's been sort of stripped out. And and again, it goes back to the writing. I think the people, even the actors and the actresses, were also coming out of World War II, coming out of. You had people that were Depression era that went into World War II, and then. The, the rise of the American middle class and the explosion of education and the GI Bill. And there was there was so much going on in America that I think people were I think they just had more of a literary background. <laughs> just the man on the street had more of a literary background or more of an understanding of 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 what American life meant as opposed to where we're at now. Well, people were more interested in other people rather than just self-aggrandizement about themselves. And this is what I did today. This is what I wore today. This is what I ate today, you know, Instagram and all mm-hmm. that. You know, it was about, you know, a real interest in what other people were doing. It was about seeing the world and reading about, you know, all these incredible places. And Star Trek took you to the... I and mean, we used to talk about this, about, you know, how when we would travel with Free Enterprise, when we were in Spain, when we were in France, the message of Star Trek was to boldly go. And obviously we're not going to go into space unless we have a million dollars for a Virgin Galactic flight. So 
you know, see the world, explore other cultures. That's what Star Trek taught us, not to stay in your parents' basement behind a computer. You and know? again, coming out of the promise of Kennedy's Camelot era of, mm-hmm. of American government, and he made the promise of going to the moon, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. And you, you, you had a real, I think, sense of optimism about the world. I mean, we were not involved in Indochina the way we were later on in the decade. Right. So... Uh, I, I think that all of this was born out of that hopeful. There was a hopefulness. And Star Trek really wrestled with, obviously, the Indochina-Vietnam dilemma because you see it in a private little war. You see it. And we'll talk about that. And also, of course, I did want to talk about how much the, the cage was an influence on Emissary, the Deep Space Nine pilot, mm-hmm. uh, which is probably one of the other great Star Trek pilots. Yep. Um, but, uh, you know, I kind of feel like at this point maybe we should leave that for another episode. Um uh, because, uh, you know, the Voyager and the Enterprise pilots are also worthy of um, revisiting, um, I guess, you know, Discovery as well. But specifically the Deep Space Nine uh, pilot uh, because it's of its mix of sort of a cerebral and spirituality and um, using the metaphor of the L.A. riots uh, uh, to tell a story of um, uh, basically people coming together to triumph over ad- adversity and, and, and potentially um, sort of racism and xenophobia. It's a very interesting pilot. And again, I think um, through the lens of, of today is even perhaps more relevant. You know, I never thought of it until you just mentioned it right now, but Cisco and the pilot is also the way Pike was coming right. off of what happened on Rigel. Cisco mm-hmm. is coming off of what happened on the Saratoga with the, the Battle of Wolf 359. It's incredibly emotional. Um, and it goes back to what you said about the universe. Here they're using this event from Next Generation, this iconic event of the Battle of Wolf 359, which is now being utilized as part of creating you know, this wider canon, this, this huge tapestry that is Star Trek. And you know, when people dismiss concerns, legitimate concerns, people say, oh, they're, they're, re- they're reinventing canon. You know, they're, they're, you know, and say, oh, well, you know, you're just fans from the 60s. Get over it. You know, you old, you know. Star Trek has, has built this beautiful house you know, this beautiful Art Deco house. Mm-hmm. And if suddenly you turn into a Spanish colonial, it's like, it doesn't go together. You know, it's like peanut butter in my chocolate. That so, actually does go together. Oh, well. Oh. It's like fire and oil and water. But uh, the point being, you know, it's a completely different architectural style, you know, will mess up a beautiful house. If you have a craftsman house and, and suddenly, you know, you're, you're doing... Uh, you know, a Bauhaus, uh, you know, uh, it's just not going to it's not going to work. So um, I think it's relevant. And, you know, Rob makes this point about, um, you know, this incredible um, universe and, and that the shared universe. I mean, why does Marvel work so well? Because it respects everything that's come before rather than reinventing it um, and, and starting from scratch. That's why DC doesn't work, you know, because it's not cohesive. And I think it's it's really interesting that, you know, and we've seen examples of how to use canonical Trek, like, for instance, the Enterprise appearing in Troubles and Tribulations in, what, 96? Mm-hmm. You know, we saw how that worked, and That's it was amazing. 30 years on, and it works. And yet now they can't show the Enterprise without changing it and giving it some visual update for whatever reason I still don't understand. Well, so. legal thing, but yeah. Let's uh, let's focus on the good and just say no, that no, and we, we love pod- the cage. Yeah. This podcast is about celebrating what we love. Celebrate, yep. Celebrate the love. I agree, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's interesting that 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 this this episode, the cage, is just as relevant. You could watch it today, f- over fifty years mm-hmm. later, and still find it just as enjoyable and interesting, and take away as much away from it as you can as when it was first made. Because Star Trek will always date 
you know, whatever is contemporary now is going to be ancient history tomorrow. And so, you know, it's the stories that have to stand up. And the cage stands up as well today as it ever did. Whereas, you know, I remember when Next Generation came out. Oh, they were talking styrofoam rocks and cardboard sets. Now look how dated Next Generation looks That's like. Right. I would argue the Next Generation is dated worse than the original show. Yeah, I agree. So, and, you know, I think the reason why the cage ultimately stands up and why why a pilot stands up versus you, well, okay, is because it is this complete beginning, middle, and end story mm-hmm. about Captain Christopher Pike and how he wrestled with loss mm-hmm. and, you know, how he was tempted to succumb to that um, and to live inside of his own fantasies um, of, of a different kind of life, but ultimately realized that he had to be the captain of the Enterprise because right. ultimately that's who he was, um, you know, warts and all, difficulties and all, that's who he had to be. And that mm-hmm. was the launch into the show. And that's why it was so great. And that's why I think it, it worked so well when it became the menagerie because ultimately it, the show could go back to that. Yep. Well, this, the cage, is where Star Trek began but it's where our podcast ends for today. This is a really fascinating look back at the beginning of Star Trek, and I'm glad we took the time to, to look back, and I think we will have to revisit some of these other Star Trek pilots in future episodes. But uh, on behalf of uh, Robert Meyer Burnett, Ashley Miller, Darren Doctor, and myself, Mark A. Altman, I'd like to thank you for joining us for another episode of Inglorious Trek Experts. And uh, I, one day I'll say it right. Uh, Inglorious Trek Experts. And... Um, <laughs> I hope you'll follow us on social media. You can find Rob at... Find me on Twitter at BurnettRM. Find me on Instagram at RMBurnett. Or find me, uh, sign up to The Burnett Work on YouTube and see my new show, Observations. And Ashley? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at AshMaster0. And uh, the second season of Lore is available on Amazon Prime. Yeah. And find me at Darren Doc with one R on Twitter. You can find all of us at Inglorious Trexperts on Twitter, and you can find me at Mark A. Altman on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, if you look for me on Friendster, you won't have much luck, but you should check out The Cage, which is about as old. Anyway, uh, on behalf of all of us, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. You can pick up my book, The 50-Year Mission, wherever books are sold, and we look forward to joining you again very soon. Engage. Oh.